Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. They're loaded up, and the 1-0 to Manessis, swinging a ground ball. Gets by the third baseman, Bohm, down the left field line. This will score at least two. Adams has scored. Thomas has scored. Here comes Abrams. He will score. And in its second is Joey Manessis. He clears the bases. Now the pitch. Swing of Manessis. Tribes going to deep right field. Castellanos back. It's over his head. It's way back. And it is gone. Goodbye. And Opposite field, blast over the 14-foot, 8-inch wall. Bang! Zoom goes Joey Manessis with his 13th home run of the year. And he now has four runs driven home in this game. It's Washington 7, Philadelphia 4. A rocket off the bat of Manessis. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, October 2nd, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who's at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We on Saturday had good Nats news and we had bad Nats news. The good news included that we did, in fact, get in the doubleheader between the Nats and the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park, despite Saturday being a cool and rainy day in the nation's capital. And the first game was a rather fun 13-4 Nats win that included big games from Joey Manessis and Luis Garcia. But the bad news included the Nats in the nightcap of the doubleheader getting ripped 8-2. The game featured one of the worst outings by a starting pitcher in Nats history, and the loss was the Nats' 103rd loss, tying the record for most losses by the Nats in a season since the franchise came to D.C. Nats now 3-15 and against the Phillies this season. Mark, a lot of baseball for the Nats on Saturday. Some of it was good. (laughs) Some of it was dreadful. Yeah, I think they'll just choose to remember what happened in the day game and look at the night game and say, well, it never really happened or we're not going to read anything into that because they had a pitcher out there for the first time who may or may not have a future with them in the organization. We'll have to see what happens over the winter. I think there were a lot more good things to take out of the day game that they will feel good about because of, again, it's the who did it, not just the what. And when you have young players, potential building blocks, doing that kind of stuff for them, I think that does matter. And I I think they were pretty happy the way that that game went. And, you know, it was only temporary, but they at least dealt the Phillies a little bit of a blow to their chances. The Brewers have not helped anything to lose to the Marlins 
the last couple of days. And so the Phillies now go into Sunday one game up. So the fact the Nats won one of those games, I think, you know, says a little something. They will try to win one more on Sunday and maybe make the Phillies sweat this a little bit more. That's in that 13-4 win in game one of the doubleheader were just tremendous offensively. 13 runs, 14 hits, four walks. The Nats in the game, seven for 12 with runners in scoring position. The Nats scored five runs in the bottom of the second, three runs in the bottom of the seventh, three runs in the bottom of the eighth. And like I said, big games for Joey Manessis and Luis Garcia. The Joey Manessis phenomenon is not stopping people. I mean, this thing is just getting larger and larger. The thing keeps rolling. The thing keeps growing. It cannot be stopped right now, what Joey Fourbags is doing. So Joey, in game one of this doubleheader, three for four with a solo homer, a three-run double, a single, and a walk. By the way, he in the 8-2 loss on Saturday night, one for three with a single and a walk. So he got on base twice in that game. But it really is something. I mean, Manessis on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader in that five-run second, a two-out, three-run double to left field. You know, if we're being honest, this was a liner that uh, was whiffed on by the Phillies' third baseman, Alec Bohm. But whatever, went down as a three-run double. Then Manessis in a one-run fifth, a leadoff opposite field home run to right field for a 7-4 Nats lead. He in a three-run seventh drew a one-out five-pitch walk. He in a three-run eighth had a one-out opposite field single through the right side of the infield. And then, like I said, Saturday night, a single and a walk. I mean, another super productive day for this guy. I don't know if you caught this. A few days ago, Fangraphs actually had a piece on Joey Manessis, and the headline was great. The headline of the piece was Soto Shmodo. And it was basically about Manessis and how he has shined and Juan Soto has not done so well since August 2nd. You know, it's a funny thing with this guy, and we've talked about what this could mean and who the heck knows what it could mean. The minor league track record really wasn't that impressive. Like, this really has come out of nowhere what he's doing, but what he's doing is nothing short of spectacular. Look, it's 52 games now in the big leagues. He's hitting 332 with a 960 OPS. In 52 games, he has 69 hits, 14 doubles, 13 home runs. Since his debut on August 2nd, nobody else in the major leagues has put together that combination of stats. Okay. Some guys have hit for higher average. Some guys hit more homers. Some guys have hit more doubles. Nobody has put all of that together the way that Joey Manessis has. So I do think each passing day, you have to give it more credence. Doesn't guarantee this is who he's going to be. Doesn't mean he's a lock to be a great hitter next year and beyond. But I think we're having enough of a, of a sample here to feel like there's some legitimacy to it. And the fact that he keeps doing it in different ways, he'll go the other way. He can drive the ball to the opposite field. I think that's a great sign. I mean, think about the best hitters out there. They all have that ability to hit the ball over the fence to the opposite field. So if he's getting pitched away, he can do that. He can still turn on a ball and drive it to left field. He hits with two strikes. I think at this point, pitchers are trying different things against him and he's finding a way to be successful against any of it. So I do think there's some legitimacy here. It's funny, Joey actually said himself, he doesn't think he's going to go into next year believing that he has secured a spot in the everyday lineup. I would venture to guess the Nationals feel differently at this point, unless there is a huge offseason spending spree coming. I think it's safe to say Joey Vanessa is going to be in their starting lineup next year, no matter what. You would think, you would think, unless something that uh, no one is anticipating is about to go down. I mean, I was thinking about this with Joey Manessis. So MLB history is filled with guys who late in lost seasons do well and then are never heard from again. So you think about, well, why do those guys end up being never heard from again? Usually it comes down to one of two things. Either the guys get figured out 
or what the guys were doing late in those seasons was just them kind of catching fire to a degree that they never caught fire again. I think with Manassas, and we've talked about this, the sample size now is large enough to where if he was going to get exposed by opposing pitchers, that would have happened already. There is ample tape out there on him. You know, this isn't like discovering plutonium. Like, you know, you're going to watch the tape and you're going to find potential flaws and you're going to see if you can expose him via those flaws. That's not happening here. And he's been at the major league level now for basically two months. So I think we can cross that off the list. I think the only thing that could happen is, okay, he's just like locked in right now. And next year, he won't be as locked in. You know, like that would just be the thing that, you know, you get in a zone, you get in a groove, and then you're never able to rediscover that for whatever reason. Now, I guess you could say, too, maybe like he gets hurt and that injury nags at him, something like that. But I think we're past the point of like him being, quote unquote, figured out. I think it's just a matter of he's locked in. I can't imagine he has ever been on a run like this in his life. I mean, again, look at his minor league stats. It's not like he was tearing it up for years and just was being held back by like politics or something like that. Like he wasn't some great minor league hitter and yet he's doing as he is doing. So you just wonder, like, is he just in some sort of like zone (laughs) that we all aspire to be in and that eventually he won't be in? It's a shame the season is ending for him. I'm sure everyone on the Nats can't wait for this season to be over. If you're Joey Manessis, you wish that this was April and that we had five more months to go in the season. Right. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't want to go anywhere at this point. Yeah, I agree with you in some respects that he is on a run. He really has not had any kind of slump, maybe a day or two, but nothing dramatic. And in the long run, he, like everybody in the world, will go through a slump at some point. It's going to happen. And then the question is, how does he get out of it? Does he figure out whatever he's doing wrong? So we haven't seen him overcome that yet. But I keep going back to this thing of it's not like all of his production is coming the same way. He's not blasting everything to left field. He's not only hitting fastballs. He's hitting the ball to the opposite field. He hits breaking balls and change-ups exceptionally well. He has a plan up there, it seems, like he hits with two strikes. All of those things suggest to me that there isn't some magic formula that other teams are going to figure out. It's like, oh, if we just do this, that's going to expose him for being the hitter that he really is. I don't think that is suddenly coming here. Do I think he is a guy who's going to post a 960 OPS and hit 40 homers and 40 doubles over a full season? Probably not. But if he could be a 20 homer guy, 20 double guy, hit for a decent average, get on base, drive in some runs, I mean, that's still fantastic given his background and the way that they picked him up. So I think even if he falls off some, that still should be the kind of hitter he can be. It would be a really dramatic fall off a cliff for him to end up being like not even a viable major league hitter now after this. I'd be fascinated to see, is there anybody who has had the kind of debut like he has for two months and then never amounted to anything in the big leagues. I know people pointed out Frank Schwindel of the Cubs a couple of years ago, a little bit of a similar story, and he failed. So maybe that's one cautionary tale. But I think for the most part, over the course of history, you look at the names of other guys who've done what he's done in his first 50 plus games. These are legitimate hitters. And I have reason to think that that's, he's more likely to be that than to fall off the face of the earth now. A name that has come to my mind, and it's not a perfect comp because this guy had already played in the majors, but Niger Morgan in 2009 got off to a great start as a national. And it was actually over a similar sample as to what Manessis has done. Niger Morgan, 
2009 season, 49 games with the Nats, 212 plate appearances, had an OPS plus of 121. Now, Manessis has been appreciably better than that. So you could say, well, that's where the comp ends. But Morgan, after that 09 season, never did anything again. And uh, he was out of the majors a few years after that. I'm not saying Manessis is Morgan, but I was just trying to think of other Nats who've done something like this. Like they just come out of nowhere, do really well. And then what happens with them after that? But like I said, Morgan, it's not a perfect comp. He had played in the majors prior to his time with the Nats. And what he did in that initial run with the Nats was not as good as what Joey Manessis is doing. Yeah, what Niger at his best was doing was getting on base, causing havoc as a base runner, you know, really setting the table. And I'll admit, I kind of fell for it and thought, hey, this guy could really be something for them. And by the next season, it completely fell apart. Niger also, to put it kindly, was a bit of a knucklehead, not the um, hardest worker, not the smartest player, didn't really go about trying to make his game a whole lot better. I think Joey's very different in that regard. And I think the preparation that he does, the professionalism that he's been showing here so far, and just the style of player and hitter that he is suggests that that's more sustainable. But yeah, no, that that's probably the best example of somebody who burst onto the scene with the Nationals, made everybody think, wow, this may be something big, and it completely flamed out within a year. Well, also having a big game in game one of the doubleheader was Luis Garcia, a five RBI game. In fact, Garcia in this game as an ads number five batter, three for five with a three-run homer and two RBI singles. He and ads one run first at a two-out first pitch RBI single to right field to tie the game at one. He and ads three-run seventh at a one-out opposite field RBI single to left field for an 8-4 Nats lead despite having been down to the count at 1.02. Garcia and an ads three-run eighth, a two-out three-run homer to right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 13-4 Nats lead, 404 feet per stat cast. And then Garcia, like Manessis in game two of the doubleheader, added to what had been done in game one. Garcia on Saturday night in an Nats two-run ninth opposite field RBI double to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 8-1. An impressive Saturday for Luis Garcia being productive in plate appearances in which he was down 0-2 and going the opposite way. Boy, he really has that down pad where he will take a pitch gladly the opposite way and he'll like kind of just poke it out there. He does it so casually, but he does it so effectively. The guy really is a skilled hitter, and uh, we certainly saw that on display on Saturday. Yeah, what's funny with that opposite field single that you're talking about, the pitch, it was a changeup. It was literally like 12 inches off the plate. It, was, it wasn't on the, on the black. It was way outside, and he still got his bat to it and poked it past the third baseman. And it's a great skill to have. He does need to just make sure that he knows when to do that and when to make sure he's taking some of these pitches that are not that hittable. The home run was on a, a pitch up above the strike zone. I'm not sure that any of the three hits in game one actually came on a pitch within the strike zone. So he's got the ability to do that bat on ball. He just also needs to make sure that he's a little more consistent in knowing when to go after it, which pitches he can actually do something with and not chase a little too much, especially down in the zone. If it's up in the zone, it seems like he can get to it and do something with it. Down in the zone, he's got to be a little bit more careful. But you know, at the end of this season, I think we're going to look at Luis Garcia and say, clearly a better second baseman than shortstop, so much so that you think that could be a viable long-term position for him. And... He definitely has skills as a hitter. I don't know if he's ever going to completely put it together and be a, you know, true like number two hitter in the big leagues, but he can be something for them. And, you know, 
if he's say like a number six hitter for them, I'm going to make another comparison to a Nat of, of old. And I know the name is probably going to make people think that this is not a compliment, but I'm actually saying it is a compliment. Christian Guzman. Okay. Guy had a long career as a productive hitter for good stretches of his career. Could put the bat on the ball with the best of them. Defensively, maybe not great at shortstop, but we're talking now about a second baseman. If Luis Garcia had Christian Guzman's career, I understand people aren't going to be excited about that, but that's a quality big league player for a good decade or so. I wouldn't think that's the worst thing in the world. And if he can come more than that, then great. Yeah, I mean, I think what's encouraging too is that he has taken steps forward offensively this season. So if he does something similar next year, you know, maybe you are starting to get into the territory of him really being a plus bat at what is normally a defensive position in second base. Like in a year in which there hasn't been much to cling to in terms of like positive developments, I do think we have seen Luis Garcia take positive steps as a batter. And who's to say there might not be more positive steps to come? So We'll see. But yeah, the ability to go the opposite way, you know, we see it with Manessis. We're seeing it with Luis Garcia. That's a special thing to have. And those guys do have it. The other thing from Saturday afternoon was that home run by Luke Voigt. What a shot this was. So again, Nats had a five-run second. Luke Voigt in that five-run second, a two-out, two-run homer on a bomb to center field for a 6-1 Nats lead, 440 feet stat cast. I mean, one of the longest home runs hit by a Nationals player this year. And the best part was what he did after hitting the home run. We know that Voigt likes to have his jersey buttoned down so that you see his uh, chest area. He ripped the top of the jersey so that you saw even more of the chest area. <laughs> did it a la, like a Superman thing almost. Pretty funny to see. <laughs> Luke Voigt <laughs> has definitely has some character to him. But he's got some pop to him, too. That was some home run that he hit to basically dead center. When he gets a hold of one, he can hit him with the best of them. The problem is he doesn't get a hold of them all that often. Or when he doesn't get a hold of it, he misses completely. There's a whole lot of all or nothing going on with that swing. But boy, it is fun to watch when he does get a hold of it. You feel like he's a guy that if he just gets on a little bit of a hot streak, he could go on a real tear for a couple of weeks. We haven't quite seen that yet here since he came to town, but I think there's potential there for something. That home run, that was another pitch that was out of the zone. It was up. It was like a tomahawk high up there and 440 feet into the uh, red seats in deep left center field was impressive, as was his uh, reaction to it and display that he put on for everyone as he got to first base, right? Yeah, he's not shy. He's not bashful, which is a good thing. You know what? He, he has come out of his shell. That clearly has happened at some point in his life. So let's talk about some defensive issues for the Nats over the course of this doubleheader on Saturday afternoon. This didn't end up mattering, but the Nats had a rough go of it defensively in the top of the first inning in the 13-4 win on Saturday afternoon. So Anibal Sanchez was the Nats starting pitcher in this game. He did not pitch well for just a second time in eight starts, four runs in five innings, but he was failed by his defense in a one-run Phillies first. He had left fielder Alex Cole in that inning, misplaying the ball out of the left field corner on a leadoff first pitch triple by our old pal Kyle Schwarber. And then you had what happened with Riley Adams later in the inning. So you had runners at the corners, two outs. The runners at the corners were two ex-Nats, Schwarber at third base, Bryce Harper at first base. Now the pitch. Runner at first goes. Now the runner's caught. They're going to throw down, and now the runner breaks for the plate. Throw back is a bad throw. Goes over Adams, and Schwarber scores. And Schwarber ended up being credited with a steal of home 
for a 1-0 Phillies lead. So you have Kyle Schwarber with a leadoff triple and a steal of home in the same inning. Like, who would have ever anticipated that? You did have the bad throw by Garcia, but all of that started with that poor decision by Riley Adams, who, remember, in the game on Friday afternoon, officially went 0-6 on Phillies runners trying to steal. Uh, That was uh, not a pretty defensive first inning for the Nats on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. All right. So about that play, I kind of had the same reaction as you and I'm sure a lot of people had watching it saying, why bother throwing down there? You know, Bryce is just trying to do that. He's trying to coax a throw out of him to then ultimately allow Schwarber to score from third. Now, here's what's interesting. Anytime you have that situation where the opposing team has runners on the corners, you'll see the catcher step out in front of the plate and make some signals to his infield. He's putting a play on. There's a designed call of here's what we're going to do if they try that play. And in this case, Riley Adams did exactly what they were supposed to do on that play. The plan was throw it down to second and Garcia comes charging in, catches it, throws back to the plate. They felt like Riley Adams did his job there. And if Garcia makes a better throw, they get Schwarber at the plate. Probably true. It really was a bad throw. It felt to me like it was so haphazard and, and kind of like happening in slow motion that it sort of felt like, well, don't worry about him. Just let him take second base. Who cares? But they believe that if Garcia had just made a better throw back to the plate, it would have worked the way they designed that play to go. Well, I looked for that. I rewatched the play because I thought, okay, if Garcia makes a better throw, do they get Schwarber? The answer is maybe, but it would have been very close. And there's no guarantee of that. And to your point about the slow motion thing, it felt like it took a while for Adams to throw the ball down to second base. So I think that that was part of the issue. I mean, we all know Kyle Schwarber. He is not fleet of foot. And he was well on his way to home plate by the time that throw left Garcia's hands. So yeah, I mean, I'm willing to believe that Adams did his job in terms of throwing down to second base, but he took too long to do that. And I would sort of question that being the plan to begin with there, because it would have taken a pretty deadly accurate throw by Garcia to get Schwarber at home plate. Yeah, I don't love in general that, you know, runners on first and third throw down and then make the throw back. It requires two good throws to work. I would rather like a pump fake, see if you can catch the guy on third, leaning too far, maybe pick him off or just let the guy go. You know, let him take it, focus on the batter, especially because that one, I believe was two outs, I believe. Yeah, I think there were two outs as that play happened. So I understand the thought behind it, but I agree that the execution of it was not great. And we know Riley Adams has not been very good at throwing out runners. He admitted the other day about how bad he's been and feels like he's let everyone down with that. We also know Luis Garcia is kind of erratic at times in the field. So you're asking two guys who are not really known for accurate throws to be very accurate to make that play work. And so maybe it's not the right personnel to run that play with. Well, speaking of being erratic in the field, C.J. Abrams has an error in each of the first three games of this four-game series, or at least what is supposed to be a four-game series. We'll see what happens on Sunday afternoon. But he, in the 5-1 loss on Friday afternoon in a Phillies one-run six, had a throwing error. Abrams, in this 13-4 win over the Phillies on Saturday afternoon, had an error. Top of the six, a two-out throwing error. He on a first-pitch grounder off the bat of Gene Segura, made a nice charging stab of a chopper, but then threw way high and way wide of first baseman Joey Manessis. And then in the 8-2 loss on Saturday night, Abrams in a Phillies five-run third inning, a one-out fielding error, 
as he botched the fielding of a grounder off the bat of Gene Segura. Now, there was some good stuff from C.J. Abrams in this doubleheader. He, in game one, went three for five with three singles, including two infield singles, which I don't think was lost on anyone. He hustled like crazy on both of those infield singles. Remember, Abrams in that 3-2-10 inning walk-off win over the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park this past Wednesday night. Bottom of the eighth, a leadoff first pitch ground out on which he did not hustle to first base, and uh, he got a talking to from manager Davey Martinez. So there was that aspect of Abrams' game in game one, but what do you make of this? An error in each of the first three games of this series for C.J. Abrams. Yeah, there's some erratic play, obviously. He also made several really good throws and good plays over the course of the weekend as well. So you see both sides of it. I do wonder the conditions, the wet balls, everything slippery, maybe having something to do with it. He wasn't the only one to airmail a throw into the camera well behind first base. That was like the most dangerous place to be in the ballpark the last few days from several throws from second base. So I want to give him a little bit of uh, uh, leeway maybe for that. You'd like to see him clean it up. Hopefully the last uh, three games in New York where the weather should be better. Hopefully he is better at that. You'd rather not him end the season on a little bit of a shaky footing as far as defense goes. But I want to talk about the hustle play because Davey called that the turning point of that whole inning and therefore that whole game. We know what happened the other night. Davey was really not happy with it. And Abrams himself said, I won't let that happen again. He did not by busting it down on what could have been a routine play. He kept the inning alive, let Manessas come up with the bases loaded, three-run double, and then Voigt, the two-run homer after that. So you can't always say, well, if this happened or this didn't happen, then this would or wouldn't have happened after it. But if C.J. Abrams doesn't bust it down there and the inning's over, I mean, the Nats scored five runs in short order after that. So credit to him for doing that lesson learned. Young kids are going to make mistakes. You understand that? The key is, do they learn from the mistakes and avoid doing them again? And in this case, he absolutely did. Yeah, that was a two-out rally that the Nats engineered in that five-run second inning, a uh, two-out rally that was actually ignited by Riley Adams. He had a two-out single to get things going there. So that was a really impressive inning by the Nats in a really impressive offensive showing by the Nats in game one. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Manessis' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the wind of the pitch. Schwarber swings and belts it high and deep to right. Way back. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. 2-2. Swing and a hard-hit liner hooking toward the right field corner near the foul pole. And that is out of here. Brandon Marsh rockets one down the right field line and wrapped it right around the pole. Back-to-back home runs for Philadelphia. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a well-hit fly ball to center. Robles hesitates. Now moves back. He's still gliding back. It's over his head and gone to straightaway center. Schwarber homers to dead center field. Another long one for the Phillies and an 8-0 Philadelphia lead. Now, in Game 2, so the Nats starting pitcher in Game 2 was Tommy Romero. And if you're saying who, what, yeah, Tommy Romero was the man's name. The Nats on Saturday had Romero as their 29th man for the doubleheader. It was on August 25th that the Nats claimed Romero off waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays. He was taken by the Seattle Mariners in the 15th round of the 2017 MLB draft out of Eastern Florida State College this season, his age 24 season. Clearly, Tommy Romero was here to just, you know, eat up some innings, hopefully make a halfway decent start, and let's just get out of here with uh, no blood having been shed. Well, unfortunately, blood was shed in this game. Tommy Romero in the 8-2 loss on Saturday night had legitimately one of the worst outings that any Nat starting pitcher has ever had, and I don't think that that's hyperbole. Eight runs, six earned in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up eight hits, five home runs, a triple, and two singles. And yes, I did say five home runs. He became the first pitcher for the Nats since the franchise moved to D.C. in the 2004-2005 offseason to give up five home runs in a game. He also issued four walks. He recorded two strikeouts. How about this? He, over his three and two-thirds innings, threw 91 pitches. I mean, think about that. Three and two-thirds innings, 91 pitches. There have been final lines by Nats pitchers that have been worse. Heck, Patrick Corbin, six runs in a third of an inning, twice in a span of three starts. But this was different. I have to tell you, I felt sorry for this guy because he clearly was out there to wear it and he was wearing it and he was getting hammered and you knew that he had no business staying in the game, but he was kept in the game because the Nats are in this predicament of, you know, trying to play all these games in so few days. And it was not fun to watch. It was non-competitive. It was non-functional. 
He did not belong in a major league game, and uh, that was a pretty brutal display of major league pitching by Tommy Romero. Yeah, it lasted all of one pitch before it fell apart. It was the second pitch of the night that Kyle Schwarber launched into the second deck. Kyle Schwarber, by the way, has hit 10 homers against the Nationals this year, the most ever by one player against the Nationals in a single season. The five home runs allowed, like you said, first pitcher in Nationals history to do that. Only two pitchers in Washington Major League history had ever done that before. Denny McLean, the former ace of the Tigers, who then came to the Senators in 1971, their final year did it. And the great Furpo Marbury in 1931 did it. Furpo, better known as one of the first great really relievers of the 1920s and a key member of the World Series winning staff for the Senators in 1924. He pitched in Game 7 of the World Series that year. So when we're hearkening back to Furpo Marbury, chances are you did something that doesn't happen very often, and that's exactly what happened with Tommy Romero. And just watching him, I'd never seen him before. I don't know a lot about him, but everything was up in the zone. His fastball, his splitter, which you wouldn't normally think of as a pitch up in the zone, and he was getting hit hard by that. I don't know. He, he tried to say that he likes to try to live up in the zone. That's where he has success. Um, if you don't really throw hard and he doesn't, that's a difficult way to go about it. So I would be curious if that's actually a formula for success for him. They needed somebody to start this game. He made the start. He's immediately sent back down because he's the extra man. We'll see. He's on the 40-man roster. We'll see what they do with him this winter, if they keep him or not. But if you're trying to just make an impression, make them say, hey, this is somebody we want to get more of a look at next year, he really didn't do much of anything in this game to warrant that. No. And you know, you don't want to overreact to any one performance, but there are levels of bad. This felt like a level of bad that like wasn't up to the standards of Major League Baseball. Like this felt like a special kind of bad that you really are not supposed to see at this level, even in the dying days of a lost season. I mean, it was batting practice out there. It was tough to watch what happened with him. And what's kind of funny about all this is that the Nats bullpen then took over and actually did a nice job the rest of the game. It didn't matter. But five Nats relievers combined for five and a third scoreless innings. Mason Thompson, Erasmo Ramirez, Steve Ciszek, Carl Edwards Jr., and Ildemaro Vargas. As we were back to a Nationals position player pitching, Vargas tossed a perfect top of the ninth. You know, I think a lot of us long ago lost the appetite to, like, find the humor in this because it's happened way too often the last two years, position players pitching for the Nats. But I will say this. Perfect inning by Ildemaro Vargas. He can play like every position on the infield, including pitcher, and he can do well at those positions. And he actually did well as reliever on Saturday night. And he showed some uh, pretty big versatility in his arsenal of pitches, anywhere from 39 on the uh, EFIS pitch to 74 on, I guess, what we would call a fastball. It worked. He had success. And then he even got the bat for himself. The bottom of the inning drove in a run. Maybe the only pitcher in the National League driving a run this year. I'll have to look that one up. I'm not sure. Yeah, look, like you said, we've kind of lost the fun in that. It had been a while, thankfully, since any of them had done that. But he's the. it's the fifth position player pitching appearance this year, the fourth position player to do it. First one in a while. Brought a little bit of levity to the end of a long day at the ballpark, but not something you want to see a lot of. I, one other point I wanted to make, let's remember the fact that Tommy Romero was starting this game. This is the game they were thinking originally Mackenzie Gore could start, and they decided not to do that. 
feeling like he hadn't shown the stamina yet, and maybe the wet conditions made him a little bit nervous as well about doing it. And I, part of you says, well, shoot, he couldn't have been any worse than Romero. Why not put him out there? And you could have at least seen something from him. The other side of the argument would be, what if the same thing happened to Mackenzie Gore? When it's Tommy Romero, we kind of shrug it off and say, well, probably not a big deal in the long run. He's probably not a part of this moving forward. Mackenzie Gore gets rocked like that by the Phillies. We're saying, whoa, okay, now we're concerned going into next year. So maybe there's a little bit of that psychology going on here. I had the same thought, but then I said to myself, if this is how you're going to operate with Mackenzie Gore out of fear, then what are you doing here? I mean, he's supposed to be a stud pitcher for you for years to come. At least that's the hope. You know, you can't be scared to put him out there. He's going to have to face the Phillies a bunch of times if he's going to be the pitcher for you who you want him to be. So, you know, he's got to be out there and he's got to figure this stuff out. But yeah, that would have been tough. I mean, Tommy Romero is one thing. Mackenzie Gore getting shellacked like that would have been another. And who knows what would have ended up happening. That was tough. Well. We got in three games in this series so far. You could argue that that in and of itself is a victory because at worst now, if you do have to do the thing of playing a game this Thursday, it would only have to be one game as opposed to a doubleheader that day. There is the game on Sunday afternoon, game four, a 135 first pitch. We'll see if that ends up happening. Patrick Corbin is an ad scheduled pitcher. I have not looked at a forecast. What I remember, though, is that it's supposed to be worse on Sunday than it was on Saturday. Saturday was dreary, but it actually didn't rain hard for long stretches. Sunday, it feels like, could be a tougher deal in terms of trying to get a game in. So that's how it looks from the forecast. But let's remember that on, what, Thursday, as the series approaching, Saturday looked like the bad day. That's why they moved the Saturday doubleheader to Friday, thinking that would be better. Turns out Friday was worse. Saturday wound up being playable and they got the whole game, both games in. So let's see. At the moment, as we record this Saturday night, it doesn't look great for Sunday. Maybe it will clear up somehow and they can play. I do think based on past experience and the circumstances and everything else, they are going to wait this thing out. Unless they are convinced that it's not going to let up to the point they can play, they would rather, unfortunately, wait and turn that into a Sunday night game if they had to, and then send the Phillies off to Houston, the Nats off to New York, and know they don't have to come back on Thursday. That is a last resort, the Thursday game. The Phillies, as I said, one game up on the Brewers right now, so it's possible that that extra game wouldn't be necessary in the end if they were to clinch. They play well, win a few more games, the Brewers lose a few more games, that's it. But MLB doesn't want to leave themselves in a position where they might have to do that. So my feeling would be they are going to wait this thing out. If there's any hope at all of it clearing up enough to play on Sunday, they will, no matter what time that actually occurs. And at least you are getting it going early Sunday afternoon, so you have ample time to try to get the game in. It's not like a 7 o'clock start where you know things are kind of rushed. Like You're going to have all day and maybe all night to try to play this thing, so we'll see what happens. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, email Tim Shovers, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Don't forget the first ever Nats Chat Podcast party, Friday night, October 14th at 7 at Walters, right across the street from Nationals Park. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat, our courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online 
at ESPNRichmond.com. The season finale of Nat Chat on the radio is on this Sunday, October 2nd at 9 on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond. We thank you for listening. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nat Chat Podcast. Bryson stopped the hitter, swings first pitch, liner, caught by the diving shortstop Abrams, sprawling to his right. He speared it on a Superman dive. One pitch after Abrams made the error, allowing Segura to reach. He redeems himself, robbing his fellow shortstop Stott with a brilliant diving backhand play.